All right. <laughs> a little bit different intro music this week because I have a very, very special guest who I've been trying to get booked here since we started the podcast. My favorite musician. And when I say that, I don't mean my favorite local musician. I mean my favorite musician who I listen to every day and one of my favorite human beings on the planet because she's just a wonderful person, so full of love and, and just goodness. We are joined by Twinkle. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Dennis. That's one of the awesome. very few people in Manatee County that I don't need a last name. Everybody knows who Twinkle is. <laughs> and that was you singing us in Rock is Love, one of my favorite yeah. songs. Thank and you. It reminds me of how incredible your guys' live performances are. As, as good as the CDs are, there's just no replacement for music festivals and seeing you guys, you know, down on whether it's Siesta Key or downtown Sarasota or giving Hunger the Blues mm -hmm. in a big venue with, with all your fans there. Uh, that energy. So hopefully, it knock is, on yeah. wood, hopefully that's coming back this year if everything stays stays on track. So you guys have been playing for a while. You guys, yes. you guys really never stopped. You were at least doing we did. The we had a long time where after because right when COVID hit, it was we were playing the festival right there on uh, the bay, and um, it was St. Patty's Day. And ah. we had a good three months, maybe longer. Okay, and nothing. So. But then all of a sudden we started working again. They opened it up. And, and well, you guys were even doing simulcasts and stuff before. Yeah, we were doing that. I, I was kind of jealous because everybody else seemed to have their act together on that. <laughs> and we, we did a few, but I'm such a right now live person, you know, and right. studio, any kind of thing is more difficult for me. But the new album um, that we've been working on is it's going to be a spectacular piece of work, I think. I'm very much looking forward to it. I did hear You're getting a clip the first from, copy. I, I, I can't wait. I did hear a clip from the, the first song that you posted and I absolutely loved it. So, uh, and I know a couple of the other tracks that, that are going to be on it. So very, very good news. And that's this year sometime is yes. where our target is, right? Yes. And that, I guess, was one of the blessings of COVID and quarantine and stuff was it got you back in the studio, right? Well, what happened was, um, it's kind of a long story. Do we have a Go ahead. Time? Okay. So uh, the band and I, we've been together as this formation for about eight years, I guess. Mm -hmm. And a um, long time ago, we we're playing a place and this guy comes up and he's on a break and he says, come here, I want to tell you something. So... Be short story is I was signed to Warner Brothers when I was 25. Okay, so he says, when you were 13, your mom brought you into a Greg Allman show and said, this is Buddy Yoakum's daughter. She wants to sing. Buddy, my dad, and my uncle Sid were the first two employees of the Allman Brothers band because they were all friends. And so mm -hmm. when they got big, they needed, you know, people. So um, anyway, so Greg said, okay, and played Stormy Monday, and I sang with him. And after that, that was it. I just was attached to trying to get on his stage. But after about 12 times, I think he was he's <laughs> like, okay. But to and me- was, You were only about 14. That time, yeah, right? yeah. And to me, that I mean, my mom was always super supportive of singing and art because we come from an artist family, and mm -hmm. her dad was a jazz guitarist for Rudy Valley and a photographer and swing era in New York. There's history books out there with him. And um, but so the respect for art, he had a saying, art is not important. It's the most important. And mm. I love that. Right. So a lot of support, but mom never did a stage mom thing. That was the only thing she ever did. Yeah. And so after that, he says, well, I was the bass player. I was Greg's bass player. And then I went on to produce records for Warner Brothers. And then they signed you when you were 25. And I said, I know this girl. She's part of the Allman Brothers. Now, family. Was this Greg Voorhees? No, okay. this is this is Bobby Croft. Okay, got it. Bobby Croft. So he 
He's a big deal, but he keeps his, he sort of is like a behind the scenes kind of dude. Mm -hmm. And he's super talented and super funny and very smart. And he came back and said, you know, I was producing records for them and I wanted to do your record, but you went with Pat Leonard. But um, anyway, decades later, because this was literally 30 years later, he says, um, I'd like to produce your record. So with the band. Because usually in a producer, whenever they've approached me, they're like, okay, so ditch the guys and yeah, come in yeah. and let's form you into something. So that's not Bobby's thing. He wants to capture what we are. Because who else has a metal band with a soul singer? It just right. doesn't, you know. So the energy is there. And we all grew up in the same time. So it's been wonderful. So working with him, but then COVID came and it put a stop on the whole thing. But it's been fantastic. He's a great participant. He co-writes. So he'll be stuff. producing this record? He's producing the whole record. Oh, wow. and, and And any future ones. I mean, he's that for life now. And he has this magnificent studio that he built out in Mount Dora. So I drive over there. It's a couple hours for me. And, you know, we went and ran all the tracks down. And we just keep going and going. And, and it keeps evolving. So it's sort of, it's not as bad as that Michael Jackson record that took 10 years. <laughs> but it's taking a little bit of time. But it's totally worth it. Very cool. So let's talk a little bit about your story because it's so interesting. You, you're you a Sarasota native and you go back a couple of generations, right? Well, my parents went to school in Sarasota. My dad was Cajun, but moved here. At, you know, he, he hitchhiked here yeah. at 12, I think. And my mom came when she was a kid. So I feel like multi-generational. Okay. And my grandparents, my, my grandma and her, her husband, my step-grandfather developed Siesta Key mm -hmm. way back. I mean, because when I was a kid, Siesta Key was mosquito, you know, <laughs> there was no anything. It was just cabins on the beach, right. basically, and some really cool architecture. But the architecture back then, if you've ever heard of the Sarasota School of Architecture. Yeah. Long, beautiful lines, very awesome, and no AC back then. It was, mm -hmm. you know, you open up the windows and doors. And, and they used to build very strategically as a result. Yes. They would use shade and crosswinds yes. and stuff like that. And to... use these great woods. And mm -hmm. I mean, everything, all those houses had a smell, yeah. very worldly. People had books and, you know, artifacts. Right. And it was just very cool way to grow up. It was very artistic, very intelligent, a lot of intellectuals, you know, my mom and all her friends, everybody was very, uh, want to change the world kind of people. And so, and bibliophiles, you know, some yeah. just libraries everywhere. And I loved growing up in Siesta Key. It was beautiful and very, um, lots of nature, lots of beauty. You, you know, I love old Florida. And then I watched it grow. And just like anybody, you know, you see your hometown develop quite a bit. But now I live in the country out in Bowling Green. But I still consider, you know, Sarasota is my hometown. I grew up there. I was born there. Memorial you, Hospital. You uh, so you started your career, and I, remember, I think I remember because we, we've done so many interviews over the years. Uh, you started with like when you were still a teenager, you were doing like hotel, like a, a, a the Marriott circuit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us about that. Okay, so I started singing really young. Like everybody in my band, we were all Benny was the youngest. He was twelve. Actually, started working, but back then you could lie about your age, say you're seventeen, and that you had graduated high school. So I was fifteen, working in tenth grade, and um. The, the thing was, is that I knew, you know, you just know, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So college, they were trying to get me into a music college and stuff. And I'm like, I don't see that because mm -hmm. I had taken theory and stuff. And I had been, we had developed VPA, the visual and performing arts center at Booker. Yeah. At Booker. I, we were in third grade 
when they came and brought us instruments and said, okay, we're going to start an orchestra. I mean, we literally, me and my friends were the first thing there. And then it just kept growing and growing. And there was so much talent there that they did the smart thing. And half your day was arts, Mm -hmm. whatever. They even had AV. I mean, it wasn't just dance or music. It was, there was orchestra, there was uh, camera, there was art, you know, painting, there was all kinds of stuff. So it was just a spectacular school. And between that and Pineview and, and I went to all the schools, <laughs> went to out of door when I was a kid, then mom got a, a teaching job at Booker. So I ended up there and then I went to Pineview and then I came back to Booker and then I went to Riverview and then I went to Sarasota. And oh, wow. I, you did the whole circuit. I did right? all of them. Yeah. <laughs> I've been at every school. So I have friends from every right. part. So to me, Sarasota is truly my community you know but i love traveling and the marriott's they had like a nightclub basically in every hotel oh, that's back right then, i right? lost that that's track okay. ADD. That's what i'm here for <laughs> i'm exhausted so we did the gator club last night at home at four then i, I uh, promised somebody that i would sing at their church at 8 30 9 30 i'm like oh my I god i bet you loved having made that decision when you woke up this oh morning, i right? was i was just i'm going okay keep a positive attitude be really you know and i did and it was lovely good but it's you have to remember the voices like need sleep anyway right. I digress. So I went, I get this gig with a top 40 band and I cannot stand, no offense to anybody, but I cannot stand pop music, mm-hmm. right? It makes my skin crawl because music to me is so holy almost. Like I don't want to hear it just. It's denigrated when you. It is. It's, there's something so creepy about it. It's just for commerce, right? Yeah. So if you can imagine, I'm singing Madonna songs back then. Like, yeah. ah, dress you up in my love and stuff like that. But we traveled all over the country and it was six nights a week and you know, you'd stay in the hotel and then they pay you 500 bucks, which was still pretty good back right. then. And then, um, we went all over the country and it was really quite an experience. I did that for two years and then I came home and I, I knew that I couldn't, I couldn't sell my soul for anything. So I came back and I joined the hurricanes after hovering at the instigator stage and the hurricane stage, just anybody that would let me sing. I mean, that's how I always was. I would just stay there until somebody would, okay, let her up. Jesus, just get this girl up here. So I understand that vibe. And that's part of why I love being a part of that Dak Shack jam every Sunday, because I know that feeling. That's that's in Madera Beach. That's in Madera Beach. And I'm, I'm watching, I'm literally watching young people. It's not just for young people. I mean, it's for everybody, but these young people come put bands together come and suck in front of people for a while, get really, then start getting really good and then finding out who they are. I mean, that's part of, you have to do that. That had to be, the Marriott circuit had to be a very formative experience as an artist though, because you had this unique opportunity, even though it wasn't doing exactly what you wanted to do with it, you got to like live that life before you went further. So I, I imagine like you had a more realistic perception of this is what this is. It's what it could be. Like you can, you can go do, Cause that was a job. They don't, they did not care. That yeah. audience was not interested in who's playing it. Right. you play that song that we all like to dance to when we're drunk right. and <laughs> your background music. Right. It's businessmen. Like it was totally not, I mean, I made friends along the way and stuff, but I knew that you, you could, the, when I realized what there was a difference is mm-hmm. when they finally let me sing a, like a soul song. Like I sang stormy Monday or something. Cause I knew that song. Right. And I remember, uh, cause they were always coaching me. There was a meeting about twinkle every week. Like you're not communicating with the audience and you're not wearing the same colors you're supposed <laughs> to wear and you're not doing, you're not doing the dance moves or whatever it was, you know? 
And I just couldn't bring myself to do it. So finally, they give me this blues song. And I, I thought, instead of making, because they're like, make eye contact with the audience and work the audience. I'm like, they, they don't care. <laughs> Until I closed my eyes and just sang straight from my heart and sang that song, then they cared. Mm. And I went, okay, I get it. I have to care right. about what I'm doing. And I can't care about cheese whiz. I have to do right. what I love to do. And over the, over the decades, it's been 40 years, but overall that it's, I find that the key to a happy life and a happy musician or artist is you're the artist, which means you have this calling and you are the only one that hears it. So mm -hmm. if you don't let it out, how are they going to know? They don't know. So you can't let other outside forces dictate that to you. And it took a long time because Mostly the industry, like I've heard this 10,000 times. I don't hear it anymore, but when I was younger, just go do what they want you to do. Get your foot in the door and then, and then right. you can write your ticket. And I'm like, but that's total bull. And you don't see the actual living example of people who've done that. Because no. once you get swallowed up by that machine, yeah. stepping off the escalator is really hard. They don't allow for it. Yeah. You're never allowed to change direction. You're not, you have to be authentic from the get go or you're never going to be able to be authentic as well, far as I'm concerned. That's what I was just going to say is... The, the thing you're talking about, I think in any performative art, the thing that attracts fans and makes a person who has staying power is authenticity. Because people pick up on that. You have all the talent they in the do. world, but if it's not authentic, you're not going to really connect with the audience. It's tangible. It's a sixth sense. And people, and you know, there's 8 billion people on this planet. There is something, instead of this homogenized version right. That's, that's that. I mean, there's so many, whatever you are, however weird you think you are, there is a bunch of people <laughs> just like that and they need you, you right. know, that's my, that's my mission is like, not only for myself and my own art, but whenever I'm coaching anybody or mentoring anybody, I'm like, dude, you got to find your own voice. Mm -hmm. You have to find out. And I say voice in any kind of form. artistic endeavor. Yes. Yes. You have to know who you are. And the only way to do that is to listen to it and do it and then do it some more and keep learning and edit later. You right. know, I, I coach songwriting too, because I think that's one of the best ways to find out who you are. So when you're songwriting, people are always, they're waiting until it's complete before they open their mouth. I'm like, no, 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 blah, 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 blah. You know, get it out, verbalize, gibberish. I write all my songs like that. I'll be like, somebody bend out a bone, don't fat I'll get the melody first and then the words will start to form later. Yeah. Way later. First, you got to get that out. And I always just love that line. You can always edit later. Get the, get the ideas out. Keep that phone, the recorder, always, whatever it is. And those thoughts, they, they come back to you. It's just awesome. And I think in a weird way, and as we talk kind of about your, your origin story, if you will, in a weird way, the way things turned out for you allowed you to develop with authenticity in a way that a yes. lot of artists don't get to do that. And I think if all of your fans... In addition to your tremendous musical talent, your voice, I think the thing that resonates most with people is like, no, Twinkle's authentic. Like when you hear the song that she wrote, you know she's telling her truth. She tells the story before she sings it, and it you really are. And that, that's why I think you're not. You know, you never see you as background music, even when you're in a background music type venue, because people are there to, for that experience and to and to ex have that exchange of story with you. So that that's the one thing. Like while part of your story strikes me as a tragedy because I look at you as this, I always say, look, we're so lucky to have her in these small venues in our community where we can go out and be two feet from the stage. And that's like this blessing we have. But at the same time, it's like, 
God, how is she not playing arenas and what and why is the world being denied of what we've gotten? So let's talk about that a little bit. You you had this early brush with massive success where you, you're 25, I believe, uh, 1990, you get signed with Warner Brothers Records, the richest contract for a brand new signed artist in the history of the label to that point. Still. They pour money into the album. I mean, <laughs> when you look at the production end of it and who yeah. played on it, yeah. The studio musicianship on that is off the charts. Toto. Who's producing? Yes. Yeah. It's just like you're looking at the bands. It's like an all-star yeah. cast of people who've played with all your favorite bands coming up to that point. Yeah. You couldn't have asked for more. No. And then just this weird little anomaly happens. So for those of you that, that, that are old enough to remember, the Time Warner uh, merger. And you it was it was a huge merger it needed antitrust blessing it didn't look like it was going to happen at a time today they're they're kind of passe but those kind of media mergers were unthinkable that you'd have two companies that big merging that many different kinds of product right and it was massive it created this massive conglomerate and it shook up everything under it because now all of a sudden like warner brothers records this enormous enterprise is only a small part of this big giant machine it's a little cog in it right. and all the management leaves and all new people come in and the way i understand it from other people in the industry was like well warner brothers was all about kind of indie artists and are looking at people like you know jewel and some people that are out there and they see twinkle and she fits this kind of mold and then all of a sudden boom it's like oh no it's mariah carey and a bunch of other pop stars and wait what does she do again yeah uh on how Holy. much did that cost? Yes, what wow, did it that make? cost that much. Yeah, and, no, bye. And it was, they pulled all the support and it just let it die on the vine. So you have this they album. Call it shelving. Yes. So that, it's so interesting because Jerry Wexler calls them the bean counters. And he's the reason I even know about the merger. Like I didn't mm -hmm. really understand, you know. And because I'm in it and the people I was dealing with, Michael Austin and Lenny Warrenker, the president. And I mean, these people were genuine people and they right. loved me. I felt like they were very supportive. And I'm writing all the time. I was very prolific, you know, and it it turns into a couple, just a few years later. For instance, one of the songs on this album is called Thank You. And it's about, it's kind of about that story and how grateful I am still that Lenny called, he called, Lenny Warnker called Quincy Jones four days before the Montreux Jazz Festival and said, I'm sending a girl. They've got this stuff booked. Like this yeah. is, I'm sending a girl and I want you to get her on. So literally just, you know, Fly me to Switzerland. One of the biggest festival music festivals in the world at that point. Literally. And put me on stage with uh, with Eric Clapton's band, Greg Gaines and those people. And I'm doing my songs, and then I do Stormy Monday Blues. And I'm the only person that got a review the next day in the French paper. I still have it. And it's uh, in French. Baba Cool, I guess, is the French word for hippie. Girl, <laughs> girl with hair like uncooked spaghetti. <laughs> barefoot won the hearts of 3,000 spectators with her Stormy Monday Blues. And I, it choked me up because the next day we were out at dinner and this the restaurateur came over and, are you a singer? And at that point, it sounds ridiculous, but I didn't wear shoes at all. Like, I don't wear them on stage, but I didn't wear them for a whole year <laughs> in Los Angeles. I was scraping tar off my feet all the time. So in France, I'm, I mean, in Switzerland, I'm not wearing shoes. And he recognized that from the description, and he, he translated for us. And then I played at the restaurant and the piano and stuff. Oh, wow. It was just an amazing experience. Mark Famiglio came over and flew with us, and Barbara Strauss was there with me. And it was, you know... Anyway, 
it was really, I thought, okay, so they now know mm -hmm. that if they put me on tour, it works. Really, that's, yeah. That works. Put me in front of people. That's where I'm best. And it truly is where I'm best. I mean, I'm, I'm not a great student. So you have to think, though, I imagine at this point that nothing can go wrong. Everything's right. going right. I thought I'd made it. Yeah. I And probably could have been arrogant about it. You know, like mm -hmm. I remember an interview going, oh, I always knew this would happen. I'm like, oh, thank God. Nobody ever heard these things. But you're a kid. But at this point, you've. That's the golden ring. You guest host you guess vj on vh1 yes, VJ on VH1. i mean you don't and they use one of your songs in a television Olympics show and, yeah. oh in the and garden of love was right. in that soap opera one of the big ones yeah <clears throat> but yeah it was like boom 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 all this great stuff and i'm thinking okay that's it i'm set i've got these great people but in the end um i go back and what i really wanted to do like i'm back here working mm -hmm. during that and i have a band a new band it's like a hippie rock band and i loved it it was very freeing for me and every band i've had is always so that i can keep exploring myself right i had my world music band i had my hippie rock band i i started out in metal band and when i was 15 so it's just and i did the top 40 thing it's never gonna <laughs> happen but when i get here and i'm playing to people which is what i do and I'm seeing that they respond to these things. But when I take it out to Los Angeles, my publisher, Warner Chapel, I remember this one girl, she's going, are you kidding? Like she hated my stuff. And I'm trying to find a producer because Pat had left to go uh, produce the album for the Pink Floyd guy, and Roger Waters. He goes, moves to London. And Pat, to me, was, I thought that was it. We're all set and I'm gonna have my producer and I got my thing. So I go back and they hated my new stuff and it was too hippie. They were now and i didn't get this merged with time and so now everything was going to be about hit pop song like make mm -hmm. money right now and you have to understand that warner was an artist development which means they would sign such a long six record and album let them deal. lose money for two or three yeah. records if that's what it took to develop the artist right realizing that they're gonna not make money until like the mm -hmm. sixth album and then it's forever like right. their roster is insane and I was too naive to do it, but they hand you a catalog when you're on the label and they say, get anything you want. It was everybody. It was everything I'd ever grown up on. Every rock album, every great, like rumors. I remember seeing rumors on there going, what? Like, <laughs> everything is in Warner, Warner Brothers, Brothers catalog. Yeah. It's a mind blower. And I didn't order anything because I didn't want to take advantage, you know. Then I, I, I understood maybe 15 years later and Jerry Wexler hands me a Vanity Fair um, magazine and it has the, the whole story of why that changed everything. Because when those two merged, the artist development was out the window. Mm -hmm. It's like, what'd you make now? What did you cost? And if those don't work out, then you're out. And that changed the whole industry really. That move for between those two companies changed the whole industry. Yeah. And I remember I had a lot of friends that worked in the labels and in the, in the, uh, artist development, everything all across the country. Cause Chris Anderson and I did a, a production tour before that one was released just to go show the people that were going to be promoting it, mm -hmm. what we're doing. Right. So you, you make friends around there and they all got letters. If you were over 30, you got a letter saying you either take the severance thing, which is great, but, or just beat it. You know, they right. didn't want anybody over 30. And it was like, it's crazy. They just, everything got shook up, right? So I don't know that. And when I'm in, I guess it was 93 or something I, around there. Cause I had, uh, I was, had a brand new baby and a boyfriend and he was my drummer. Anyway, it was very <laughs> stressful. And, um, 
they Michael Austin said, look, I'm leaving. My dad's already left. I'm leaving. And Lenny's leaving. We're all going with Geffen to start DreamWorks Records. And you can stay here, but I don't want you to because the next guy in my my job is going to look at what you cost and what you made, and he's going to shelve you. And what that means is you can't do anything. Anywhere else, yeah. Anywhere. You're just, you're in limbo. And many, 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 many bands have had to go through that. And it's hell for an artist. You can't mm-hmm. go play gigs. You can't make records for anybody else. You can't do anything. They're just holding on to you because you're contracted to them, period. So he said, what I'm going to do is release you from this $850,000 recoupable signed mm-hmm. here and give you some money and you just go live your happy life and uh, I'll see you later. And explain that a little bit, like how big of a deal that is, because that's how record deals work. And I don't think most people understand that is they've invested so much into creating that album. And then that's kind of like an advance toward you. And then they own recouping that until they get all of that back. And back then in particular, touring didn't really make money. Back right. then it was like tour was just to promote the album and it often lost money right. and everything was in those record sales. So being released from that was huge, right? Huge. And the thing about those deals is they're kind of a really bad loan shark deal. <laughs> like <laughs> they give you all that money, but they also, at least sometimes, I mean, I wasn't very assertive, but then they tell you kind of what you're going to do. And then, right. and then if that doesn't work, that's on you. But what they do is you, you get this tiny little piece of each record and that's when you need lawyers. You need lawyers negotiating mm-hmm. this stuff. Otherwise you could get a really crappy deal or you could get a really good one, but either way, it's going to take a while unless you're just massive to right. pay that back. And even if you are, I mean, there's some documentaries out there by bands that were massive, massive. And while they're making this documentary, they're still owing, you know, millions of dollars to the record company because they got screwed in their deal in the, mm-hmm. to begin with. So there's, it's not the golden ring, but we don't know that when we're kids, you know, right. you want to get signed. That's what you want to get. It's like, yeah, that's, that's the path that everybody before you has taken. Right. And I think that that time period was interesting in a lot of different art mediums, because when you look in the late seventies through the eighties, you still had record companies, movie studios, even and uh, publishing houses that were owned by the original person who started a small business and it got big, but they had that love for the art. Then you had throughout the 80s, you had big corporate conglomerates coming in saying, hey, look at that little company over there. That actually makes a pretty good return on that investment. Why don't we buy that? And with our business expertise, we'll turn it into an ATM machine. Right. And then you have, and that's where I think that homogenization, a lot of it's come from, is you have non-music lovers that don't even understand what you're doing. Right. Or and care. That, you no. Know, and then, but you, someone then that does has to explain to them why this is a good idea. And increasingly what that became, whether it be a movie, an album, whatever, is you had to tell that bean counter, hey, she's just like her. Yeah. Somebody who's already succeeded. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. She's the next, that person. Oh, okay. That makes sense. And yeah, yeah it sounds just like her. I could, yeah, if we throw her in that dress and have her sing that song and blah, 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 we could recreate that success. And th- when people say, why aren't there any good movies anymore? Why are all the books the same? Why is all everything on the radio sound the same? That's why. That's why. I mean, you can literally take songs and paste them on each other and play mm-hmm. them at the same time and they're the same song and it's like creepy <laughs> I, I i did years after this i mean there's so much that happens in a life right so it feels like a million lifetimes but years after this i'm i'm making a record with rick hall from fame studios right he's dead now but um jerry wexler who i loved and wanted to work with he 
he thought nobody wanted to hear what he had to say about anything. So he's retired in, in Sarasota, but he was just a lovely cat. And he was a music lover. He loved it. But um, my mom had written some country songs. And so I put music to them and sang them. And she sends it to fame, at Rick, to Rick Hall. And bugs them enough, which is hilarious, till they finally listen. And Rick Hall calls me and says, I... I want to come out of retirement and let's, I want to do a record. You know, I don't want to see this thing die. And so we, I ended up going up there and making a record with him and he kept moving it into the country thing. And I'm no offense to anybody. I cannot stand country music. Okay. So <laughs> I'm, but I, so we made this record that we both could agree on, you know, it wasn't any of my songs at all. And it was all, it's the first time I've ever done a project where we're listening to CDs of publishers that say, sent, it made me, I learned a lot, but publishers will send out CDs of a bunch of songs from their people mm -hmm. and you listen and, you know, so we did that. It took about a year to finish this record. We go do this big, huge showcase in Nashville. Everybody's there. Rick Hall's a big deal, right? So everybody's out. They've all got history with him. And if it wasn't them, it was their dad had history with him. I mean, he's been around forever. He produced Land of a Thousand Dances and, you know, Mustang Sally. So the guy is entrenched in music right. history. And we do this great showcase. All the label heads, all the presidents want me to come sing to them in Nashville. So I would go and sing with an acoustic guitar player. And we, I just would sing to them in their offices. And I got the most incredible rejection letters <laughs> and at that time though i was desperate i thought i really needed a label i was still in that mindset of i have mm. to have a label i have to have a home i feel so weird like it was really discombobulating for me and part of where when i became an addict and everything like i thought i'd screwed up everything but at that point these letters which i found not too far in the in the past they were amazing you are a true artist and we can't do this to you and it was like that kind of language. And I, I was really touched by reading them again. I would want to reach out to those people, but you know, a few of those, and they were like, this is not the machine for you, you know? Right. And so after all these things that I perceived as dark times and even the addiction and the, you know, the alcoholism and everything, which hit me late, I was 40, I guess, before really? I really, yeah, I, and it was from because of the blow. So I'm doing a ton of blow <laughs> on tour and then copious amounts of alcohol to come off. And right. I end up waking up this alcoholic brain and, and just became unrecognizable for almost a decade. And then AA and I got, you know, sober, but, and I love it, but I, I am grateful. Like when I hear people say I'm a grateful alcoholic, I understand that. It means I have been through hell and I came out the other side and now everything looks beautiful to me. And that's exactly how I feel all the time. You know, I'm just like, everything's great. I have my fingers and toes and eyes. Like you were talking about your eyes. It's like, at least I can see, I right. can see, I can still sing. I literally thought I was losing my voice and, and my body and my skin. Everything was just, I mean, alcohol is a solvent <laughs> and I was drinking cheap stuff. They probably made out <laughs> of tires, you know, but so you come out the other side and little by little, we put this band together and it starts and I had a DUI and it was plastered on all the papers on the uh, front page. And then SNN was So for four days, <laughs> in, I in a my, loop. yeah. And so the, and that was my last sobriety date was November 1st or whatever year that was. So it's been nine years. The owner of eat here 
is such a smart ass that he saw that and he got so mad that he called me and said, well, I want you to be the house band. So we went in and we started playing at Eat Here on Main Street. And it had been so long since I felt really good about where I was playing musically and what, what I'm doing. And we, we started building it there and people started coming. And I just we just decided to just do what we love and that's it. And we wrote beautiful songs together, me and Lenny and, and the guys. It was just, it turned into this amazing, creative awesome everybody laughs we're intellectually so, but mad. that was also a very big turn in your musical development so you, yes. you had this opportunity where you're starting uh tony always calls it gypsy jazz um you had a very different sound back on haunted with uh haunted by real life mm-hmm. uh, great album but very different sound and even the first couple times i saw you before the band was together mm-hmm. same thing very different sound you're doing a lot more acoustic stuff and then and i'm gonna have tony on the podcast to tell your story in greater detail but you have you guys have this amazing story in which you were like mid-20s when you yeah, found out i was pregnant with Monique, so i was like 27 and he i get a phone call from dad you have a brother and he's coming to meet us you know be here and when we met we looked so it was like seeing myself in a man you know and i i was in a poor relationship but i'm pregnant with uh, Monique and we That's became your second daughter, correct? Yes. Yeah. So I've got a six year old or a five year old Ursula and then Monique. And I, you know, my uh, relationships have never really panned <laughs> out. But um, Tony and I were instantly, because we had lived the same life, we read the same books, we had the same thoughts about stuff, we had the same philosophies. I mean, we were raised completely differently. And so to me, I was like, oh, DNA's real. Okay, I get it. <laughs> you know, and we, we have a we understand each other on a, such a level that it's just it's it's absolutely insane and I so you guys mean at that point he is a bass player in a pretty prolific New York metal band Big, Big Bad, Bad Wolf, Wolf. Yeah. yeah with Lenny your guitar yep. player today yep so those guys have been together forever yep and they end up coming down and, and the original plan I believe was you guys were doing a one night retrospective on your album at Ben Wazel yes so we, supposed to just get together for one night. Well, we, we rehearsed it for a long time because it was the 20-year anniversary mm-hmm. of Haunted by Real Life. And so I'd played a few shows at Van Wazel, and it was sort of a, you know, where I'd think, okay, if I'm going to play this big theater in Sarasota, I'm going to go there. And so we do, um, we rehearsed the album exactly the way it was and went in and played it like that. And so we had such a good time doing it as a band with, I mean, Tony and Lenny knew that they are jiving and, but me and Lenny and every, and Troy was the drummer at that time. It just turned into this great thing. I was like, oh, okay. Why don't we just continue this? We'll just keep doing this. And Tony probably tells it better. He's got a better memory for things like that. But I, to me, my second life, we have a song called Second Life on this album too. My second life started with these guys, this band, my sobriety, like because I was so depressed. I can't even describe to you how depressed I was when I was, you know, in my in the midst of everything i thought i'd screwed everything up there's a con you know what contracts i didn't mm-hmm. sign what contracts i did sign who i did work with who i didn't work with what i should have done what i didn't do you know all the stuff that yeah no i don't think any human is is cut out for that kind of experience because you had this thing where everything went exactly the way you dream it to go and then not no one incident comes and and like changes that at all but they're kind of like, hey, remember that golden ticket we gave you? We're going to need that back yeah, real quick. Like, yeah. I don't think anybody is, especially at that age. Prepared. Yes. Right. Come on, right? There's and, no class. Like, on and that. there was no place to like look and say, 
And that's why it was probably such a, a that's a really gracious thing, a disturbing to thing to look at and say like, what did I do wrong? Because I'm sure that probably obsessed you with oh, like, yeah. how, how, how did I like make one how little tiny thing? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And the answer was you didn't. It's just the life goes that way sometimes. Yeah, it is. That's awesome. <laughs> That's true, right? That's so awesome. But yeah, it is. I mean, we could all look back and say, you know, look, if, if everybody got to do it over again, then we'd all be successful and there'd be no right. point of any of it. But, you know, so we'd all second guess things. But like, there is no obvious thing where it's like, you know, oh, like some people have a story of like, I wasn't ready for the success and I self-sabotage or I did something. Yours was just, no, it just, it was there and then it wasn't. Right. And I kept doing the same things and didn't understand why there were different Right. realities as right. a result you know yeah no that's that's a really gracious so thing. you end up though with this thing where you have the and let, let's talk about Lenny Brooks for a second this guy's just as much in the sense that you hear him doing a guitar solo and rock is love or something or sanctuary and you look and you're like wait a minute how am I listening to this guy in a bar in, in Bradenton you right. know what I mean what the hell is going on here right and uh, same thing, you know, he's played with a lot of big bands. He's sat in on tour when, you know, uh, uh, guitar players were in rehab and stuff. And he's, uh, he's, he's been up on those biggest stages and showed, yes, he absolutely belongs there. Yeah. But the pieces never fell right into place for him to have that. So he's in the band. And then your, your baseline with your brother and uh, Benny, you couldn't, it's so tight, you couldn't fit a pin through it. I love it. You know what I mean? So you have this amazing band backing you. And then there's this like weird contrast where it's like you hear the metal and then you hear this like soulful, sweet, sultry voice that like they don't necessarily fit, but you mix them together and it's like, oh, but they work. Right. And you get like this thing that reminds me of the very best like 90s rock. Like, like I feel like if this was like 1989, you guys would be doing nothing but arenas. <laughs> and it's like, but you know, music went in some weird direction. Yeah. But for fans of that, that's what you see at your show. You see the people saying like the people who say, oh, they don't make that kind of music anymore. No, they do. You just have to look so damn hard for it. That's what I love is, you know, that we love each other so much and then we play the stuff that we love and what we write mm -hmm. and that we love, which resonates with the things we grew up on. And there's all these people, young people, old people, you know, it's really cool because the fan base, so now it's like this community. So my sense of community has come from our shows where they just keep coming and they keep bringing people and then yeah. any, and so it's like this huge family. And that's why I wrote sanctuary. Cause I'm like, this has been my church. This is really my church where a congregation of people that get together and help each other. And they're together every, I mean, we're together every weekend, right? We're always positive. I tell people if you're lonely or you feel sad or anything, you need to come to a show because it's not just about us. It's like those people, yeah. Even the staff at all these venues, they're like, oh my God, we love when you guys show up because your people are so nice. It's a different so nice. vibe, absolutely. Because I go to a lot of the same places and see other bands, but when your people are there, it's just a different vibe. Nice. And that's something, you mentioned the sobriety, and I've noticed that there's a big sober community among your among your fans. Um, how has that been during like quarantine and not having as many opportunities? I know it's a lot harder for people in that situation to go through something like we did over the last year. Uh, did you get a sense of that from, from your following? I think that um, what I get was people, for instance, when we were out for three months or whatever, and then we finally get a show back, it's as if people were starving to death. Yeah. They need music. Music is really important. And it's, I think one of the lessons of all this stuff of me getting signed and the whole stadium idea and all that is that it's not about me. Right. You know, and it changed the way I wrote songs too. Cause when I, when you're young, <clears throat> I speak 
for myself, but I, I'm pretty sure that this is common. When you're young, you want to show how good you are, right? right, right. So you're going to make more complex stuff, yeah. and you're going to blah, 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 you're going to be everywhere at all times and doing as much. And then you realize that doesn't engage people because mm. they can't sing that. You know, everybody can't sing like that. Everybody's not going to get that. But if I write songs where everybody can sing along, that's my favorite anyway. Like any movie I see and there's a pub and yeah. one guy's over there and he just starts <laughs> singing and everybody erupts and I'm like, oh my God, I want to live there. I love that. And so Sanctuary is about that. Like when we get together and we dance and we sing and we're together and we're singing all together, there's no greater feeling than that. And stadiums, when everybody does that for like the metal bands and they, you know, and they get the lighters, that feeling, we get that every weekend when we're all together doing that. And it's just so powerful. And I, I'm happy all the time. So anything extra... I think that's why this album is so important too, because instead of looking at the album like, oh, this is our ticket, it's more like, this is awesome. We're already awesome. We're already feeling good. That right. We're already happy. So that's really good. And there's no tension and stress and, and burnout. There's no feeling of, oh God, we got to do this or we're never going to, you know, there's nothing like that. It's just this is a wonderful, remarkable, in, in Lenny's words, we're in a remarkable position. We have Bobby, who we love, and he he's like the fifth Beatle. We go there, and he participates. He's a great producer, but he's also a great songwriter. And he, he helps take what we are and help us, you know, use all of what we're good at together. He's like, I said, you're really good at this. This is early on. And he goes, well, here's my job as I see it figure out what you guys are really good at and get you to do a lot of that as much as possible. <laughs> and then figure out what you're not so great at and, you know, try and keep you from doing that as much as possible. And I'm like, that's it. He's like, I want the best for you, but not in a way where he's trying to craft some foreign thing that has nothing to do with us. And I've already experienced that. That's a soul killer. You know, you trade over. I'm convinced that that whole deal with the devil fable is about, it's not actually the devil. It's about, you trading you for what you perceive as success, like money, mm -hmm. fame, all those things. When really you being authentically you and being happy is success. Like right. that's the success. And then that will grow. And then that invites other people into this experience and it grows and it just continues to grow. And it's all growing so organically that it's not like, okay, has been, you know, right. okay, it's over. You know, like the Rolling Stones, I love, I've seen a lot that got me out of that rat on the wheel thing. I mean, AA is totally great because it gets you to let go of things you have. It's very stoicism in a way. Let go of things you have no control over, you know, focus on yourself and, and say you're sorry if you screwed up and forgive those who didn't forgive yourself. Like, so you're letting go of everything and you're starting fresh. So it's like being a kid every day, right? right. You're brand new. Everything's awesome. This is great. And it's not fake because you didn't squish anything. You're literally processing it and moving on, you know? And when I, when I think about that and I look at uh, how much I was fretting and really stressing over everything, it was just my whole life, you know? And I know everybody does it. But when I came out of that and I'm looking at, for instance, why am I not famous kind of vibe where I would, you know, really stress about that, that I'd screwed that up somehow. Then I see people like Tom Petty who says, I just want to come off the road so I can be with my grandchildren. Then he dies. Right. He didn't have a lot of time with his family and his grandkids. And then he dies. It's tragic. And then Prince is dead. And then Michael Jackson's dead. Whitney Houston, who this was a particular thing for me because when I was on the Marriott circuit that we were talking about earlier, 
her album came out and I was already feeling like, what am I doing? I don't, I can't stand this music. I shouldn't be doing this. It's not, I'm supposed to be, you know, I had the schedule in my mind, which I guess kids do. But so I'm like 19 and she comes out with this record and she's gorgeous on a beach or something. And this beautiful, beautiful girl. And she's got her own record deal. And I'm like, I was so jealous and it was not my kind of music, but I was like, wow. You know, cause she obviously has a beautiful voice, very mm -hmm. talented. So then over the years, I would watch her and what she's doing. She's singing songs that I don't think she was totally into. It could be my own imagination, but I saw her sing some gospel one time on some TV show. And I could recognize that's her bag. Like you, you could see her completely moved and blissed out. And I know that feeling and I know what it looks like. And I was like, that's not what she's doing. That's what's wrong. And in the end, she ends up dying. And you know, people will blame it on the crack, which of course drugs, but drugs are also, an, a, they're more like a symptom yes, that something's wrong, right. you know? And so watching that and no watching, one goes down that rabbit hole if they're fulfilled and feeling self-actualized. Exactly. You know? And so I'm watching her and then she dies and then all these deaths. And I'm thinking, man, that world, if you do the deal with the devil trade off, right. it will kill you literally. Not just figuratively, not just internally, like literally kill you. And I personally, you know, I'm like health food guru, think I want to live for 150 years. Seriously, I want to be 150 years old. If my grandmother and my great grandmother died at 100 without even trying, I'm like, I could push this, you know. And I just keep researching it, nutritional healing and stuff like that. But also that whole spiritual thing and that mental thing and it's mm -hmm. all all these tools that we have at our disposal i mean there's been so many great philosophers and there's just so much information out there you could literally be happy but i think part of happiness is that yin yang of going through the dark side and realizing you know one of those phrases in on the wall in aa meetings is this too shall pass and those moments feel so permanent you feel like oh my god i've really messed it up and i've had friends that have actually ended their lives and mm. you know and then gotten phone calls the next day their family oh they got the gig you know right, right. and that's tragic you just i just want to live and keep experiencing and now i've got these grandbabies and i want to be there for their grandbabies you know i just i love what i do i love my life and that's how i started if they ever asked me to go to a meeting and speak you know i say first let me start here and tell you I love my life. I'm happier yeah. now than I've ever been in my life. And in retrospect, I know the difference. I've been in hell, self-made, but still, you know, I've been in the dark side. And you come out, and it's amazing because you wouldn't know that this is great. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't know that if you were, if you hadn't gone through I all that. I think for artists a lot of times, there's a, there's a struggle with... Not even so much the validation part. I mean, of course, we all want to have our art validated. We all want to share it on some level and have someone say, hey, I enjoyed that because that's what you make it for. But then there's also that part where it's like it's such a struggle when you're doing the apprenticeship like level of any art, whether it be a writer or a, you know, a musician or a, you know, film tour or something like that. You, you go through this really like difficult period of barely paid apprenticeship when you're coming up. Right. And what you want more than anything is you look at the people that have financial security and are able to just focus on their art because they're not worried about the electric right. shut off. Right. And like, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of more jealous of, you know, you, you might love the luxurious lifestyle when you see it. But what I worry more about today is that the it's gone beyond that to the point where I think 
we've marketed to kids that fame in and of itself is the end goal. Right. And I hear teenagers when I go and speak in schools and stuff saying they hope to be an influencer when they grow up. And I'm like, right. wait, what? And they're like, I, and it's like, oh, you just want to be famous for the sake of being famous and how wonderful you think that is. Right. When in reality, when you talk to most people who've made it in their art, they say the fame itself is the worst part of it. Right. You know, like, yeah, it's great to have the money. It's, it's, I'm fortunate that I don't have to worry about, you know, if, if I need to have a, a crown put on my tooth, I don't have to worry if I'm eating that week or making my car payment. Right. But the bad part is I can't go to a grocery store like a normal person and not, you know, get accosted, you know, and have to, and it's, it's such a hard thing because I don't want to be ungrateful for my fans. But at the right. same time, I don't want to take three and a half hours every time I go to Whole Foods, right. you know? So th there, there is that exchange. Let's talk about your dad for a little bit because such an interesting character and, and you bring him up so much in your music and, and who you are as a person. Um, a guy that almost seems like a book character. Like he's, yeah, he's, for sure. Yeah. So he, he hitchhiked here from New Orleans. Um, he's, he's part Cajun, correct? He is Cajun. Yeah. He is Cajun. And, uh, he did, he was good friends with Dickie Betts. like when they were kids, right? Yeah. Like they grew up near each other. Yeah. And then he ended up being like, uh, he owned some trucks, I think it was. And he started like doing the transportation. Him and my uncle Sid started driving them. And, okay. and then Charlie Daniels and like all the Southern rock bands back then used to travel together and mm -hmm. things like that. And Annie Cummer which would be a great interview for you to have. She came out of the woodwork not too long ago, and um, she had lived with Uncle Sid back then as a friend, her and her boyfriend, and they all had lived together, and they had a motorcycle club, Dickie Butts, Barry Oakley, Uncle Sid, Dad, Buddy Oakum, and Jimmy, her boyfriend, McDonough. And they had this motorcycle club because she's like, you have to understand back then – is a m you know having an MC was it, you had to because right. if you're gonna ride they're gonna mess with you I don't yeah, know if I yeah. cuss on here they're gonna mess with you so bad unless you have this thing so they have these patches she gave me her jacket so what was the name of the MC um, screaming eagles because okay. dad was the hundred first and um, so right after Vietnam Sid moves in with her and Sid was playing all the time our uncle Sid was a musician but he didn't he saw enough of that world that. Like he did an album with Marshall Tucker. They were his band mm -hmm. and, but he never released it. Like it was for Capricorn records and it just, I think he saw what was happening to the Allen brothers and everything. They blew up really quickly just by being them, you know, and they would play locally and then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and so they needed people and dad and Sid were like the first employees of the band and they, um, they toured and everything, but, so Dickie is from here. He's four generations or something. He goes way back in Florida in this whole area. And him and Greg would both uh, hire locals when they do solo gigs and everything. Yeah. So they've influenced this area so much. That was okay. So that was the next thing I wanted to get into is that is so fascinating to me. When I first moved here and I was a huge Almond Brothers fan, I grew up on all 70s rock. You know, I, I found uh, my dad's record collection in the basement and there was a hundred records. Nice. First concert I ever went to see was Bad Company and I know oh you're a massive God. Paul Rogers fan yes. who you've sung with before. Yes. Um, I remember you said once that you your fantasy would be to live inside Paul Rogers' voice. Oh my God, <laughs> I totally, I wanted to sing like that. So, so I was much. always into that music and when I got down here, you always hear in the, in the sort of the mythification of the Almond Brothers, you always hear about Georgia and then it's like no not really no. they're really a Sarasota band yes because Barry had moved here from Illinois with Dickie when he was in his teens Dickie's here for generations already from Bradenton and then Greg lived on Longbow Key for like a decade mm -hmm. so th they cut their first album up in Georgia and they spent some time up there but they spent way more time 
they in between tours here. and everything here. Yeah. They would play the black clubs in Newtown and stuff. Right, and they, right. her house was where they would rehearse. So the mm-hmm. first Allen Brothers rehearsals, the development, where they wrote, um, uh, what was the song? She was just telling me the other day, she'll tell you, but Statesboro Blues or something like that, where they wrote uh, this music that everyone can hear in their heads now yeah. was in her living room. Oh my God. Could you imagine of her that? little wood house, you know? So Sarasota is the dawn. Yeah. Of the and so it was so cool that every time I'd go out and see some bar band that I'd never heard of, but somebody told me it was good. There'd be some connection on some level to the Almond brothers. Really like is, it yeah. was somebody who was like, Oh, he played on the 91 tour with Greg, yeah. you know, um, Bruce Wable. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Greg, Greg Voorhees. Voorhees yes. Bert Inglesman, like, Tons of these people. And, and then to be able to see Dickie's people like Mike Koch, yeah. you know what I mean? And oh my God, can anybody sing Greg Allman like him? Yeah. And then how many second generations now? You'd see Barry Dwayne Oakley in some yep. of the clubs. You'd see uh, uh, him playing with or without Mike. Then you'd see uh, Greg's kids coming into town and stuff. So it was this weird place where you could go and hear th- this one you know, degree of separation from one of the greatest jam bands of all time. One of the Isn't greatest rock bands of all time. interesting because I never think of it like that because it was always here. So to me, right. it was part of the scene and part of the family and things like that. But to look at it objectively. Right. It was crazy because it's, it's not a big place. So it's right. like, like you're going into these small clubs and seeing this. See, I love, I love our musical community and there's something and, and being in Madeira beach every Sunday too. So over the bridge, Tampa was the metal capital of the world for a long time. So the rock stations would yeah. drift into where when I was growing up. And the musical community in Sarasota has always been super talented. I was telling Richie and Bert yesterday because we were at a funeral for Kenny Crawley. God bless him. And Kenny Crawley is a British cat that moved here in the late 80s. And he and I played. He played with everybody. But he and I had a band called The Sweet F.A. And just just a magnificent foot i mean the guy could just he was just a motor and it was incredible his groove was masterful so all these musicians are there yesterday there's richie kicklider and bert inglesman and um tony with my band with them and mike koch and gary gazzardo was what we made a live album at the 50 long time ago i did not that's one piece of trivia i did not know you and mike were in a band together Oh, we've been in band. We joined the Hurricanes together. We oh, were, wow. we were, he was 18, I was 19 or something, or he was 19, I was 20. Either way, I'm a year older than him. And we both joined this band. And that's where I learned soul stuff because I had been, I was raised on rock and roll. And then they taught me respect. I hadn't heard that song. They taught me on guitar and stuff. And they taught me a couple other things. So it was a, it was an awesome band, the Hurricanes. And the Instigators were a reggae band. They were original too. And that was Richie Kicklighter. And I was totally in love with him. So they were. I remember when he came back and played with you. At, I think it was at the court, uh, the seafood festival in Cortez yeah. a couple years back. Yeah. Just wonderful, wonderful players. I mean, I, and so that was such an impactful time in my life. Right. And I'm surrounded by these musical geniuses, literally that should also be stadium people. I mean, these and I don't say that anymore because to me, the, the sense of community you get from being able to play with in these smaller yeah. venues is so much more important to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love a big stage, but I also love the small stages and I love, I love people. It's a good job for me. I'm in the right job for me. You know, I love talking to people. I love hugging them. I love singing to them. I love singing with them. I love listening to them. I love when they bring their kids and then their kids grow up and they bring their kids and I'm <laughs> like, Oh my God. So for me, it's wonderful life. And to have that perspective now after having a completely different perspective earlier is really a blessing. But Richie and Bert, I was, I got 
choked up. I'm like, you guys, when I was younger, I'm in my late teens and early twenties and I'm surrounded by people like that, you know, and I'm watching them play. And it, and back then it was a thriving music scene in Sarasota. I mean, just every club had music. That's back when there was, you know, the bottle clubs were open till four and nobody was complaining about the noise. And so there was just a venue, 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 venue. And you would just do the circuit. You'd play all the places. And so being around that and, and they were, and the thing, what I love about the Florida music scene, or at least this area, is that it's not homogenized. Nobody moves here to try and get famous. There's right. no, no uh, A&R guys out there going, yeah, but you, you need have to, to do this. Yeah. yeah. So there's none of that. So everybody's doing their thing, you know, and Richie's very unique to himself and all these different people are doing their own unique organic stuff. Everybody's different and there's a place for everyone you know, and there's all this different kind of music around here and it's just so rich and it always blows my mind now because when, now that I'm older and I really look at things like this and analyze and I'm going, nobody seems to talk about this out there. Right. It's always New York, LA, Nashville, Austin, all those places, maybe not Austin, but all those other places are pay to play, Yep. you know? And so how are you going to get an honest perspective from what the fans want? If you're paying, you know, it's just weird and creepy but so the people are moving here to play and Florida is filled with with music venues and, and restaurants and bars and places you can go. Just the festival things. circuit alone. Festival is, yeah. circuit is fantastic. The weather is great all the time. I had this really I wanted to do a festival of just locals. Mm-hmm. And I called uh, Henry Paul because the outlaws are a local. You yeah. could consider them locals. Right. I said, you guys could be my ringers and come in and then everybody else could do the thing. And he's like, we were talking for a long time and he's a really cool dude right and he said well long before you the florida scene's always been great there was this band called the the tropics he said the tropics ruled you know he's just listing all these bands that had been for the history of florida and had gotten national stuff had been on the radio and so it's it's just always been like that and it's almost like this weird secret but not a secret. And so Florida's really, really a great place to be a musician, at least. And then it's also kind of validated by how many musicians who aren't from here retire here. Yeah. I mean, that the craziness of that. For instance, I wrote a song with uh, the band, and it's sort of a Stones vibe. So Bobby Croft, the producer, says, you know what we could do? The guy that produced the Stones lives around the corner, <laughs> and his daughter loves to sing backup, so you could come, you know, just stuff like that. There's always something yeah. crazy like that. Aerosmith, I saw them, because I opened up for them, which is just a bizarre story, but um, I, I was at a songwriters conference in New York, and it was the Songwriter Hall of Fame, and there they are at a table, and I went up and I said, hi, I'm Twinkle, I opened up for you guys in Tampa. And they're like, oh yeah, I remember. And uh, Joe Perry says, where do you live? I said, I'm from Sarasota. He says, I love Sarasota. I live there. He was so, ah. it was like this little kid. He's going, I love that. I live there. And I was like, yeah, it is cool as it is. Like you just, it's a really neat place to be from. And it's a really cool place to live. I live in the country now, but I love Florida everywhere. Right around the corner from me is, you know, forest and park and rivers. And I take the girls out. Are you still in Sarasota County? But like in the no, east No, it's oh. Hardy County. It's oh, Bowling Green. Oh, you're way Green. up there. All yeah, right. From you, it's an hour and 20 minutes. Wow. But the You've co- got goats, right? I ha- I used to have goats, but they kept getting out and the sheriff would come over. It's a very <laughs> stressful. I just have chickens and a cat with yeah. Tony. We bought a house on two acres and it's surrounded by Orange Grove and... You know, every day I, I wrote this song, Beautiful Life, because I just I'm looking at the kids are running around the rain and I'm seeing it sparkle. And I'm like, these are lyrics. I'm just, you know, right. and it's just so beautiful. And I 
I love being alive and having gone through the darkness and just you recognize stuff like being around kids. Dakota, when the wind hit her for the first time, I could still see her face. Her mouth dropped open like, what is this sorcery? This is amazing, <laughs> you know, or when they see grass and they just, wow, this stuff squishes and then it pops right back up. It's everything is awesome. I remember a couple of years ago seeing a video on your Facebook of you teaching her how to play piano. Yeah. And how beautiful that was to see. Oh my God, yeah. just everything is awesome. And if you look at it like that, you know, the grateful thing, and I know everybody, you know, talks about the attitude of gratitude or whatever, but it's true. It's like, if you start saying, okay, I'm glad for my fingers and my toes and my eyeballs and my brain and that I can walk and I mean, you can't stop because once you mention your legs, you got to mention everything, you know, you just got to keep going. And then you realize that everything, the fact that you're here is just magnificent and you stop being depressed or worried or, you know, I like the phrase worry is a misuse of imagination. Ah, there you go. Yeah. That's like my favorite. And I, uh, I, I, right before we got to the studio today, I was out walking Holmes beach every Sunday. First thing out of bed, I literally, before I have a coffee, anything, I roll right out of bed. I drive right to the beach and uh, walk about five, six miles and it just centers me. Yeah. And it's like the whole time I have this great appreciation and I started doing it during quarantine. My son and I, uh, you know, he was going through the obvious funk of junior year in high school, proms canceled, yeah. oh friends graduations, can't, like everything, every seminal experience just like ripped from them, right? right? And I could see him like kind of, sort of like dropping down into a depression and I'm getting worried. And I said, listen, man, I said, here's what we got to do. We got to make a list of the things that we love about this place that aren't impacted by this. And then we've got a plan to exploit them constantly. Brilliant. And so we started kayaking more. We started walking the beach more. And so I started this Sunday, you know, uh, it was almost like a church experience for me where I'd go walk the beach by myself, collect my thoughts, and then just start every week with this idea of how lucky I am to live in this place that I get to do this. That I could just, right. I used to, you know, I grew up in a Pennsylvania mining town and it was three hours from the Jersey Shore. Wow, yeah. That, and we'd go there for one week and camp in the year. And that was like going to going to the moon. Like that was right. like leaving the planet to go to the Jersey Shore. And right. I'm like, I'm five minutes from a beach that makes that look like an alley, you right. know? And uh, I'm, I'm going a month without enjoying that. That's my fault, right? Right perspective man and i love all the scientists it's like you there's this show there's this podcast called uh, the hidden brain yes i've heard it right it's so neat and i just always take lessons from wherever i can get them but i love listening to npr and wmnf and and usf we got some great radio stations here yeah and when my favorite thing is when they interview people that have done or created or something or like the ted hour or anything like that where there's so much good thought out there. There's so many good ideas and tools out there. And perspective is literally everything. So there was this thing on stoicism the other day, and the, a man wrote a book called The Stoic Challenge. And not realizing that I was basically raised this way, but that if you can't control it, you know, you let go of things you can't control, like the past, other people's behaviors. You can't control stuff that happens, but you can control your reaction to it. So you can, you know, however you perceive stuff is how it affects you. So if everything sucks, there's this parable in Taoism. And my mom raised me Hindu. So a lot of Eastern philosophies because my skin would crawl if I'd walk into a church. And she's <laughs> like, okay, this isn't going to work. So <laughs> she brings me into Hinduism. And what I loved about the Eastern stuff is uh, we're all one thing. It's more like, you know, we are all part of the same thing. And that's how I feel, right? 
I think love is the fabric of the universe and we're just sort of, you know, able to talk about it. But so this parable is there's a village in wherever and there's a war going on. Right. And uh, this villager, he has a teenage son and all the other villagers have their kids and stuff. And uh, the teenage son falls and breaks his leg. And the villagers are like, oh, we're so sorry about your son's leg. And he's like, it is what it is, which is a very Taoist thing, right? Life on life's terms mm -hmm. kind of thing. And so the next day, the soldiers come in and they take all the teenage boys to go to war. And they're all like, oh, you're so lucky your son broke his leg, you know? And he's like, it is what it is. Next day, their only horse takes off. Now they don't have any horse to work the fields. And they go, oh, we're so sorry. You lost your horse. And he's like, it is what it is. Next day, the, the horse comes back with 50 of his best friends. You know? <laughs> so now he's got this whole herd of horses. And they're like, oh, my God, you're so lucky. And it's, it's just about how things happen. Mm -hmm. That pendulum swings, you know, the yin-yang. And if you get discombobulated every time anything goes on or you get too elated or too depressed or anything, it's like, no, just deal with things. And if you can't control it, there's no reason in replaying it over and over and over. Like when bad things happen in your past and you just keep playing it over and over, all you do is dig yourself in. And, and your body, if you know anything about the brain, your body doesn't, your brain doesn't know the difference. So it repeats the emotional response of the first time. Yeah. You're taking yourself back into an unhealthy place. You're yeah? torturing yourself yes. literally with trauma all the time. And when you learn about all that stuff and you realize, okay, so perspective is everything and just being at peace like your meditation going mm -hmm. on thing my meditation of, I really feel like singing is my meditation I feel totally connected when I'm singing and I'm you know I'm getting the goosebumps and I'm getting the rush of of everything I feel love and I feel like I'm totally channeling something awesome and that we're all part of this thing and then I go hug everybody you know it's it's a very powerful thing or having been on the other side where everything just sucks and you're just depressed and you think everything's terrible and that's all on you just like you said it's like it's all the way you look at stuff and i choose to look at things you know the way i look at them which seems to be working for me so <laughs> that's why i talk about it so much because i do have people reach out because i'm so verbal about mm -hmm. my sobriety and stuff like that and i was a late bloomer i mean i was 40 before that ever started so it's not like i was a lifetime of of hell but i I just realized through that that I want to share that with people because I know that people I'm more out there about it mm -hmm. because I'm a I'm in the public eye and I want right. them to know you know I want everybody to know that me I went through this I you know people like me you're not alone there's nothing unique or horrible about you and that's why the meetings are so powerful it's like if you could just get around a bunch of people and they start telling stories your stories seem you know, you thought you were the worst thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And then you realize you're not alone. You're a human being. And there's something so beautiful about that. And that, that camaraderie, that fellowship, and it eases your mind a little bit. And then you learn these tools. Like one of my favorite phrases when they say, if you want what we have, if you want peace of mind, like how we got it. And nobody's out there saying, do this, do that, you know, worship this, worship that. There's nothing like that at all. It's just, I, so last night, the reason I even bring it up is because last night, like every other time I'm working, somebody comes up that I care about and says, I really want to, you know, get straight, but I can't or whatever. You know, there's always somebody out there suffering. Mm -hmm. So that's why I talk about it. Cause I've just like, you don't have to be miserable. You don't, you, you can, God, I did not mean to get preachy at all. No, please. <laughs> I'm just like, I, I'm really touched and moved by the power of everybody 
just being honest about being human, you know, and like everybody has frailties. We're all the same. And this, the idea of division that I'm different than you, it's like, we're really the same. We're all in this big human race of DNA. And we're, I look at everything I do now in sort of a bigger picture, like how will this affect the world? For instance, I'm at the funeral yesterday and Kenny's dead. He's laying in the casket and all these people are there to show their love and how they affected him. And I realized on the way home, I was like, all you have is how you affected the world. Because in the end, you're going to go. And the only thing that lasts after you is how you affected people and what you left to the world. And did you make it better or, you know, did you help? And that is how you, you live longer. And to me, I was really touched by that because he had so many people. He affected a lot of people. That's not me, is it? Oh, that might be mine. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> so I just, you know, I always try and, and help. I want to help. And not in some arrogant, like, I know what to do way. Just... I've been, I've been as depressed as you could possibly think about. And I understand that there is a way that you don't have to be that way. But first you got to realize it's not going to last forever, you know, and that whole thing where people do end it, you know, that's a permanent solution. What do they say? A permanent solution to, to a, a temporary temp problem. Yeah. You know, I, I, I talk about that a lot. I grew up in a place I grew up very dark, depressed place, you know, where the economy fell apart a half century before. And I didn't realize so as an adult how odd it was. I remember some, one, the first time I had a friend who, committed, who had another friend who committed suicide and lost somebody in life that way, they asked me if that had ever happened. And I was only about 30. And I said, oh, yeah. And I started listing off. I had about six people that I grew wow. up with that did it. Yeah. And I grew up in a tiny town of 6,000 people. Right. And they're like, wait a minute, what? And I'm like, yeah. I remember this kid in eighth grade because he eighth couldn't wrestle no. because of his grades. Oh. And wrestling was his life. So he thought that was the end. Uh, another close friend at 16 who wrecked his friend's classic Chevelle because the friend passed out drunk at a party. Friend's girlfriend needed to be home by 11 or she was going to get grounded. He drove the girlfriend home, wrecked the car coming back and thought, I wrecked his classic car. I'll never, ever get past this. And I'm like, I remember telling my son those stories and saying, can you fathom how silly the thought would seem to him now? Let's say he's a 45-year-old man right. with three kids, a family, and a job, and thinking, oh, my God, that car was in a junkyard somewhere, and that guy got over it, and he's got his own life. Right. It's so I, interesting I you bring that up. I thought my life for that. Like yesterday, I was listening to that podcast I was talking about, and they were talking about um, the how the brain deals with stuff. Like how you can train yourself to have a better perspective is mm -hmm. by making yourself uncomfortable so you and which is what life does to you right life puts you just what we're talking about when i'm 25 and you lose something like that then you're like oh shit you know but later after a lifetime you look back and you go it's just a it's just things in your life you yeah. get through it but if you're young you don't know you're going to get through this you don't realize that this is on the scale of life events and traumas and stuff it's i always not, say when you're young you don't realize how little the seemingly big things are and how big the seemingly little things are. That's so poignant. That's absolutely right. Like I would live. We put in a so much weight on these things that we think are seminal in terms of our success yes. and our accomplishments. And then we put so little weight on the, just the day to day enjoying yes. the experience of being here as a, a live human being. When in fact, that's what all the gurus ever right. try and teach us. Just like be here now, <laughs> now yes. screw all that other stuff. It we have a matter. sign in my house that says, you will never be right here again. And that is beautiful. I love that.
I love that. The existentialist wisdom, you know? Yes. And these things, this is what drives me always my whole life. And I always resonated with those things when I was younger. And I, you know, now I really get them, you know, especially when they've lasted, you know, when you have some of these things that are ancient because we're a human family and we, you're, I'm writing with, uh, I'm writing this thing for my future generations long after I'm dead. Like, I just want them to read this and know that this is stuff you need to know and things like that, you know, just be here now. You'll never, you know, all those sayings, they're, they're so rich because they're so true and they're so simplistic mm-hmm. that when you're little or when you're young, you look past them. Cause you're like, yeah, that's, you're silly, like oh, that's silly. <laughs> and then you get older, you're like, Oh, they knew what they were talking about. This is totally right. You know? And it's just true. And then in the end, you go, okay, I love that I woke up today. You know, right. I love that I'm just sitting there looking at little kids that I'm that are my grandchildren. That's my future. You know, that's my that's the immortality right there. I love when I'm on stage with these guys. I love when we're setting up, and then we got the crew. Yeah. And the band, we we love to connect and get and we love each other. We're tight. We're best friends. You know, it's really neat. And Lenny is funny as all get out. Benny's hilarious. We're always talking and sharing. And Benny and I love the the sci-fi and the weird, you know, conspiracy stuff. And Lenny and I love the food and the nutrition stuff. And he's, he's always got a job. The guy is the funniest man on earth, I swear. And then there's Tony and we all just connect yeah the chemistry in your band is absolutely it's amazing. extraordinary it's always fun when you guys are at a festival i'm emceeing or something like that because it's just you guys bring a totally different energy to it you're so good you're like this magnificent human you always <laughs> make me feel good i appreciate it but well, yeah it is mutual <laughs> hey tell you. us about some places where uh fans can come and see you especially now listen if you're out there and you have never somehow seen twinkle and rock soul radio uh shame on you but the good news <laughs> is boy are you in for a treat where can we see you coming up uh soon let me find out let me get my phone I'll go tell ahead you right now no problem yeah there, there literally has been uh few experiences that have been as much of a privilege as getting to see them especially in some of these music venues uh aces which unfortunately closed down years ago they, they used to play once a month uh you know great place i love seeing you guys at motorworks now they have that outdoor stage the uh stottlemyers over in sarasota great barbecue and a great music setup if you're in inglewood um inglewood's on dearborn is a great venue where we go it's small but the food is spectacular and the people it's just really there's just so many great venues when we you know we had to go through some times where you play little places mm-hmm. and then you had to be kind of acoustic and you know and then they're always running up telling you you're too loud and, like, show up. and then the <laughs> cops would show up and somebody's complaining and it was like this whole noise ordinance era that I was trying to fight you know and I finally gave up and at that same time every time there was a noise ordinance article there's me with my mouth wide open <laughs> on the microphone screaming and they're like twinkle and noise ordinance and it just went hand in hand some places wouldn't even book us like the place downtown the blue rooster or whatever they wouldn't book us for a long time because because of that they associated me with problems <laughs> right so then tony's like you know screw this i had a bad experience with a past manager and tried to screw everything and take his whatever anyway he takes over starts booking us and says he's just talk to people and go 
look, um, we're not a dinner band. This is not a dinner set. This is a rock band. It's a show. And if that's what you want, great. And if you don't want that, then that's, you know, it won't be a good match. So we ended up getting venues that just love us. Embrace that. That we love them. Embrace it. And it's a great match. And it works. And it's great. And it's like, wow. Because we went through the other stuff. And, you know, fit matters. And so it's really fun because we're playing loud rock and roll right bombastic moving awesome stuff and mostly people, originals when you guys play covers yep. you're still adding so much to it and i love like uh oh my god when you guys do um uh just my imagination thank you oh god that's it. like to hear it in a female voice from a totally different perspective and then lenny's guitar I mean, He's your piano playing, which solo. is oh. to get better and better all the time. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm trying. My Everybody tells me to quit using my left hand. So <laughs> I, I might. Okay. So coming up, Inglewood's on Dearborn on February 12th. Motorworks on 13th, which is right down the street. Big Top Brewing, which is in Sarasota. That's I was just place. there last night for a Grateful Ted event with two bands. And I, I was so impressed by the new outdoor stage you just bought. So yeah. if you're looking to do something outside, COVID safe, where you've got the open air and most people wearing masks, uh, that Good would be food. a great spot. What night are you at Big Tops? We are there the 19th, Friday. Excellent. Saturday, second and the twenty third annual Thunder by the Bay. Oh, perfect. February 20th. Where is that out in Lakewood Ranch again this time? I think so. Get directions. Okay. Thunder <laughs> by the Bay. I know they moved it from downtown out to, out to Lakewood Ranch. Which I have to say was so annoying because here you go. There's just these all these businesses downtown. Thunder by the Bay bringing massive mm-hmm. amounts of people with tons of money. I mean, let's face it. Bikers now have to have money. You can't right. afford a bike without yeah, it. Right. You know, <laughs> the day doc- of the poor biker is over. No, yeah. no. It's doctors and lawyers for right, God's sake. Right. It's accountants, people that can afford a Harley Davidson. Right. And so all these businesses are making bank and- this one lady, it really broke down the one lady, just like in the old days with the noise ordinance beginning, is one person just calling enough and complaining. Yeah. And I actually have a, I can't tell you what it is, but I have a short story, a science fiction story, where the people that would call and complain about the music being too loud, this bot goes through the phone and gives them a heart attack. <laughs> 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 it's terrible. It's terrible, Twinkle. Your peace, love, and grooviness. Okay, Sarasota Fairgrounds, it says... Thunder by the Bay. All right. So we'll look for that as well. Now, I'm going to take us out with one of my all-time favorite songs by you guys. And if you could maybe give us an intro about it, but uh, we'll ever find what I'm looking for. Okay. Well, we'll show the soulful side now that we showed your rock side on the way in. Yes. Well, remember the bad relationships I was talking about? So my heart is broken. I'm in a relationship with somebody I could tell is completely, you know, not. and, And so... Broken hearts when you're young feel so physically like you're literally going to die. And I always believed in a soulmate that I just wrote this song. I was never much about love songs or anything, but this is, will I ever find what I'm looking for? It's like me going, am I ever going to really have, can I find this person? And I really, it sounds trite, but I think it's me. Like, I think you find yourself. And, but when I listen to that song, it's still, it's important. It's one of those things, you know, a publisher told me one time, I can't really use your songs for other people because every song you write right. is like your life story. You know, it's about you. And that's, you could, if I died tomorrow and you needed to know about me, you could just listen to all the songs I ever wrote and pre-seen. You could just do my timeline. Oh, they're divorced. Okay, good. <laughs> and I don't think it's trite because I, I think in my experience, most people who go through a lifetime of really bad relationships, the reason often is because they're looking for the things that they can only find in themselves yes. in a shortcut 
where somebody else already has it in a package for right. them. And, and that's sometimes that a, a shortcut to doing the work yourself, right? Right, exactly. This so, is why you're a great writer because you, <laughs> you, your verbiage, well done. Well, I thank you. So this is one of my favorite songs. And listen, for any of the aspiring singers out there, this is an example of authenticity and someone bleeding it emotionally onto the track, what they're feeling, and really convincing the audience that they've lived this song. So here it is. This is Will I Ever Find What I'm Looking For? Twinkle, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, and uh, looking forward to see you back live soon. Right on. Thanks.